might have to be able to get through there.
Now would be the time to make sure you've got your seats. No, can't hear. That's better. Can you hear me now? That sounds all right. I've got some, uh, some nods from the front row. We'll just uh, be quiet now as we come to the beginning of our service. And in a few moments, I'll ask you to stand as we sing the first hymn that's in your order of service booklet. And during that uh, singing of that hymn, our clergy will come and take their places at the front here. It's good to welcome you to this service again. And this year we'll be particularly remembering 1917 and uh, the events of that year and also those on our honour roll who died in that year. So, I would ask you to stand now as we begin our service. Would you all be seated? Very warm welcome to our Anzac service today. And if you're visiting us, a very special welcome to you. It's a particular privilege to have our Premier with us this morning, the Honorable Gladys Berejiklian, and also our Mayor, the Honorable. Gail Giles Gidney and her husband John, 
welcome. And our federal member, the Honorable Trent Zimmerman. To those who come representing the Defense Forces, local emergency services, representatives from overseas, members of the local authority, members of the community, it's a delight to have you sharing with us this morning. We're also grateful to the Kuringai Male Voice Choir, who are going to be singing to us, and to the Camarago Brass Ensemble. Thank you so much. And our preacher today is the Reverend Grant Dibden. The order of service is printed in the service sheets, and nothing is going to be announced. Please would you stand when you should stand, and sit when you should sit, and all will be well. Now let's take a moment to be quiet. And if you'd like to turn, please, to page 8 of the service booklet. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy.
Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We are encouraged by the Scriptures to acknowledge our sins and not to hide them before God, our Heavenly Father, but to confess them so that we may be forgiven through His great goodness and mercy. We ought to admit our sins before God at all times, but especially when we meet together to give thanks for all the benefits we have received from Him, to hear His holy word, and to ask what is necessary for the body as well as the soul. Therefore, let us draw near to our gracious God and confess our sins together. Almighty and merciful God, Lord of all nations, we confess with shame the sins both private and public by which we have broken your law and grieved your spirit. We forget our lack of love for you and for one another. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us our sins, Take from us all hatred and bitterness, whether in thought, word, or action. Lead us to forgive as we have been forgiven and live our lives according to your purposes for us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has promised forgiveness to all who truly repent and believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. Grant you pardon for your sins, peace in your hearts, the Holy Spirit to enable you to live for him, and at the end, life everlasting in his eternal kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen as we look for the renewal of the whole creation through Jesus Christ, we are bold to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. The following reading is from Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 1 to 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors.
reading from Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 53 to 58. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the immortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let us pray. Almighty Father, whose will is to restore all things in your beloved Son, the King of all, govern the hearts and minds of those in authority, and bring the families of the nations, divided and torn apart by the ravages of sin, to be subject to his just and gentle rule, who is alive and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Eternal God, from whom all thoughts of truth and peace proceed, kindle, we pray, in the hearts of all, the true love of peace, and guide with your pure and peaceable wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth, that in tranquility your kingdom may go forward till the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we remember how your Son had great compassion for those who suffered. Hear our prayer for those who still suffer as the result of war. For those who live with the pain and scars of bodily injury. For those whose minds are shattered. For those who have been bereaved and for those who have lost hope. Grant to them peace of mind and heart and relief from all their suffering. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. O God, our Father, make us to be those who work for peace seeking always to express your love in the world. Help us to encourage the spirit of reconciliation, sowing love where there is hatred, pardon where there is injury, faith where there is doubt, light where there is darkness, hope where there is despair, and joy where there is sadness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
Please take your seats. Anzac Day commemorates a great defeat, which seems very strange to other nations. That Australia's most hallowed day of military remembering does not recall a great victory. Why? It's not as though we haven't many great victories or, or impressive military achievements to choose from. There are plenty of them. In World War II, we stopped the, the Germans and the Japanese. The marauding Germans were sweeping across Europe and North Africa and we stopped them at Tobruk. The Japanese who bombed Pearl Harbor, knocked over the Philippines, moved down the Malaysian Peninsula, overrang Singapore, landed in New Guinea, we stopped them at Milne Bay 75 years ago this year. And of course, as we're thinking about the 100th year anniversary, another candidate for celebration occurred then when 800 Australian light horsemen from the 4th Light Horse Brigade made a mounted charge across three kilometres of open ground against 4,000 Turks who were dug in with artillery and machine guns at Beersheba. The Turkey soldiers were so unnerved by this mass of light horsemen thundering towards them that they couldn't lower their artillery quick enough and they forgot to, to lower their sights on their rifles and so most of the shots, most of the bullets went over the heads of the charging light horsemen. And of those 800 who charged, 31 were killed and 36 were wounded. But they captured 700 men. This was one of the most successful cavalry charges in history. And it was against what seemed like impossible odds. And the fall of Bathsheba swung the battle against the Turks in Palestine. It brought the breakthrough that ultimately defeated the same Turkish armies that had annihilated us at Gallipoli. It led to the retaking of Jerusalem and it changed history in the Middle East. But not even that is our most hallowed day. No, our most hallowed day of military remembrance recalls a great defeat and a terrible loss. Why is that? Why has our defeat at Gallipoli become nation-shaping? Why is it that us Aussies who are notoriously irreverent, why is it that we show a reverence as we commemorate annually the defeat that was Gallipoli? Well, I think it's because Gallipoli symbolises for us the qualities of courage in the face of great adversity. As the war historian Charles Bean wrote, reckless valour in a good cause of endurance that will never admit defeat. Gallipoli symbolises caring for your mates and sacrifice. That's what we respect. That's what we appreciate and value, the honour, the courage, the selflessness, the sticking at it to get the job done under harrowing circumstances, the personal sacrifice. And we're in the third year of the centenary of the Great War, in the centenary of Anzacs, 
And a hundred years ago, Australians were primarily involved in fighting on the Western Front. A little over 100,000 Australians have died in wars. 60,000 of them died in World War I, and 45,000 died on the Western Front. 134,000 were wounded, and countless others suffered psychological damage. They were young men, by and large. The vast majority of those killed or injured were between 18 and 25. These figures are staggering, aren't they? And even just 10 days ago, on the 10th and the 11th of April, we commemorated the 100 years of the Battle at Bullicourt, where we lost 3,300 Australians and 1,100 were captured. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it, how Australians coped with that, with such losses, when today the loss of a single soldier will see national news and will see politicians attend their funeral. Can you imagine being on the Western Front? Australian troops were on the Western Front from March 1916 until the end of the war in November 1918. Two years and eight months, holding the line, as you'll see on the front of your bulletin, as 1917 has been deemed. Can you imagine being on the Western Front day after day, month after month, year after year, and virtually getting nowhere? Try to picture it in your mind with me. Come with me to the Western Front. It's a desolate place. The trees that are there, such as they are, are stripped of all, of all foliage. Most of the branches are gone, so they look like stakes. I don't know if you've seen that famous picture with them standing there, just these trees, but no branches on them. And this duck, duck boards trail going through this mud goes for three kilometres. Or the, the pictures, there's just mounds of dirt. There's just, there's nothing there. There's just these mounds of dirt and water and puddles. And it's just this horrendous scene of a quagmire, of craters, of things. And, and it's just this sea of nothingness in some senses. It, it looks like the moon in some ways. It's a terrible place. And one digger... W.H. Downing described the conditions on the Western Front like this when he wrote. On the front lines, dead lay everywhere. The deeper one dug, the more the bodies one exhumed. Hands and faces protruded from the slimy, toppling walls of the trenches. Knees, shoulders, buttocks poked through the morass. We were soaked from head to foot with sweat and icy mud. A greatcoat, which they wore over the top, was wet and muddy and it weighed 18 kilograms. Soaked equipment laden with 170 rounds of ammunition and two or three bombs weighed you down tremendously. Rifles became entangled in thousands of old telephone wires festooned across and along the trenches in a mesh of tentacles. They knocked their helmets off into the slime and they caught men under the chin and tripped them up. And they full, fell length, full length into the mud. 
There was a foot of slush on the changing surface of the clay. Men in the front line stood hour on hour in icy slush and were put out of action with trench foot, a form of frostbite that often ended in gangrene and with the loss of toes and sometimes feet. They were weakened by hunger, shattered in nerve by the continuous barrage. The rain poured in torrents. Some were first forced to crawl. No matter how overcome, few dared rest because they might be unable to move again. They might fall asleep and perish before morning. The men didn't have bars for months. Rats in their millions infested the trenches, spreading infection and contaminating food. There were two main types. There was the brown rat and the black rat, and they, the brown rat was especially feared. They gorged themselves on human remains, and they could grow to be the size of a cat. Lice, too, was a never-ending problem, breeding in the seams of their filthy clothing, causing the men to itch unceasingly. Lice caused trench fever. That was a particularly painful disease that began suddenly with severe pain and high fever. And the nits, the nits were everywhere. Europe failed many times to break the hearts of the men of the Antipodes, but was never clear, closer to succeeding than here, is what WH Downing wrote. Can you imagine living in those conditions? Can you imagine the shells lounging around you, the constant threat of snipers, enduring those conditions for years. That certainly was endurance that will never admit defeat, as C.W. Bean famously wrote. See, that's what we find inspiring. The reckless valour that displayed at Gallipoli, the, the endurance and the never-give-up attitude that kept our troops in those atrocious conditions on the Western Front. That's what we find inspirational and worthy of commemorating. And so we remember, we remember the blood trodden into the mud of a foreign land. We remember their sacrifice. And we remember the sacrifice of many more who have fought in other wars. And we should be grateful. And while we don't glorify war, we do remember the sacrifice of those who went before us because there is something noble about sacrifice, isn't there? And the sacrifice of Jesus is at the centre of our symbolism for Anzac Day with its crosses for the fallen, with the sacrificial language and with the reverence. But Jesus' sacrifice is on a different level, isn't it? You see, 100 years ago, thousands of people gave their lives so that we might enjoy life today. But 2,000 years ago, one perfect man, God incarnate, gave his life so that all humanity might enjoy life with him for eternity. And I'm sure you picked up the sacrifice mentioned in the Old Testament reading which is speaking of Jesus. It says, surely he took our iniquities and carried our sins, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was suffered, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life unto death. He bore the sin of many. I think humanity instinctively knows that this life isn't all there is. A number of headstones at Gallipoli have this idea in them. One reads, our dear son lost his life to find it. Another, not goodbye, but good night. And today we talk about loved ones who have departed and who are looking down on us. But death is part of war, isn't it? And death is part of our lives too. It's strange that we don't talk very much about death. I mean, death is the great leveller. We all have to face it at some point. But the Christian message is that death is not the end of the story. The Christian message is a powerful balm to the jolting finality of standing beside the grave. The grave is not the last word in what it means to be human. The Christian message is that we can live without suffering and death for all eternity if we are with Jesus. This is what the New Testament reading is about, wasn't it? You see there at the beginning in the first verse, the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And then the Bible says something quite extraordinary. It says that this victory has come through Jesus in verse 57. Jesus has defeated death. He has taken the sting of death. Where, O death, is your sting? Now that, that's remarkable, isn't it? Because death seems like it's the end. It seems like death wins when someone dies. So how can this be? I mean, death just seems so permanent. Well, the Bible likens death to the sting of an insect with an incredibly strong sting. And it's a sting that it calls sin. Now today, I think when we hear the word sin... We sometimes think that means the pedophiles, that means the murderers, that means the rapists, that means the robbers. Well, well, of course, of course, they're sinners. But sin in the Bible is talking about rebelling against God. And those sorts of sins are clearly rebellion against God. But it also means the things that we do wrong. It's the things that we should do that we don't do. It's the wrong thoughts that we have. It's the going our own way. It's the doing our own thing. And well, against that standard, we're all sinners, aren't we? I mean, I certainly know I am. And the Bible says that sin is the means by which death hurts us. Just as venom passes from a bee sting to its victim, so death passes through the sting of sin to each and every one of us. Sin is the barb which death inflicts its fatal injury through. Apart from sin, death has no access, no power to puncture. The only way to, remember, to render death harmless is to remove the sting. To escape death's sting, we need to be delivered from our sins. And the Lord Jesus came to meet that need. Jesus appeared on earth to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has taken upon himself the anger of God at our sin. And by so doing, he has broken death's harmful connection to us 
Our sins are forgiven. Death no longer has power for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. See, once a bee has used its sting, it can't use it again, can it? In the process of the attack, it leaves the bar behind in its victim. So it can't repeatedly sting. It can only sting once, and after that it's harmless. And the same, the same is true of death. For those who trust Jesus, Jesus used up the sting on himself. When Christ died, he bore the curse of sin and he satisfied the demands of the law. When Christ died, he forgave sin. He fulfilled the law and he defeated death. Death has no venom left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's, that's amazing and it's amazing love, isn't it? I mean, think about somebody else paying the penalty for the things that you have done wrong. And it isn't just to someone. This is Jesus. Jesus, who is the second person of the triune God, for whom and by whom all things were created, whether here on earth or whether in the heavens above or in the seas underneath, all rulers, all authorities, all dominions are subject to him because he is the Lord of the universe. And he died for you. Jesus who was the Alpha and the Omega, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He died for you. That's amazing, isn't it? That's truly amazing what Jesus would do. And when he did that, he took the sting of death. And if that doesn't fill you with awe and wonder and thanks, then I don't know what will. It just doesn't get any better than that. Our forgiveness, our reconciliation with God is a costly but free gift purposely offered by God. But there's a catch to the gift. It's not much of a catch, but it's there. So if I say to you, you can have my house. Have you got my house? No. You haven't got me, you've got to come and take. But if you say, look, I want to earn the own money, I want to pay it, I want to stand on my own two feet, I want to look up, well, you haven't got my house, have you? And it's the same sort of thing with the gift, but it's even better than that. It's like, it's like I own Buckingham Palace. I mean, something that you could never possibly afford. If you were one of these ordinary soldiers that we're thinking about today, if you were one of these people who doesn't have a lot of money, there is no possible way you could have enough money to buy Buckingham Palace. You have to take it as a gift. You have to accept the gift. And that is what you have to do with Jesus. That's how we get reconciled to God. We have to accept this extraordinary gift of death on our behalf or the sting will still kill us spiritually. You see, you can't be like Switzerland. You can't be a neutral country. There is no neutrality. The sting of death is either in you or it's in Jesus. The choice is as stark as that. Now, taking this extraordinary gift means that you need to submit to Jesus' rule, to stop rebelling against his rule, to stop running your own life and to submit to him in every area of your life. Sure. Sure, you won't be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But we can repent. We can say sorry 
when we do things wrong, when we rebel against God again and turn back to his rule. And I know that some of you here today will be familiar with Jesus, but that's not the same as submitting to his rule. You've heard about Jesus. You may even think that he's a great man or a wise teacher or even God the Son, but that's not enough. You have to submit your life to his rule, the whole of your life. You have to say sorry for the wrong things that you have done, for the rebellion that you have been leading your life, for living even as though Jesus doesn't exist. You have to ask him if he would come into your heart to be your Lord and Saviour. And I know that's a big call. That's a big call. I know it's a hard thing to do. But Jesus' rule isn't of the demanding and the harsh disciplinarian type. It's it's a loving rule. It's a compassionate and merciful rule. You see, when you know Jesus and you're known by him, when you are in this personal, intimate relationship with the one who said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. You'll, You'll want to do the right thing. You'll want to submit to him because that means that you'll get to know him better. That's the means by which you'll deepen your relationship with God. You'll want to live for him. You'll want to live under his rule because you trust him. Because you know that he is the wisest and most loving person who has ever lived. And if you are a Christian, if you have submitted to Jesus' rule of your life, if you have trusted him for your salvation alone, then don't you just want to thank God for what he has done? Don't you want to live for him? Don't you want to stand as our New Testament concludes, therefore, my beloved brethren, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Because Jesus has suffered and defeated death. Because Jesus has taken destiny. Because Jesus has won the victory. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Know for sure that the work that you're giving yourself to is not in vain because it is work for the Lord of the universe. How you live does matter to God. No, you don't earn your salvation. You can't have enough money to buy in in that, if you remember that illustration. But if you are a Christian, you already know that. But you know that how you live does matter and your life working for the Lord will not be in vain. We've thought a lot about death today as we've remembered the fallen. Death is something we'll all face. And if you're trusting in Jesus, when death at last lands on you, it will not come as an executioner, but as an usher. It will not come as an end to life, but as an entry to eternity. For those who trust in Jesus and put him in charge of their life, death is on its last legs. It's a bee crawling around without a sting. And we can shout, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Friends, my question today for you is this. Are you willing to listen to the voice of God?
Is the Lord laying something on your heart? Do you need to submit fully to his rule? Or perhaps is there somewhere that you need to stand firm? Is the Holy Spirit giving you a gentle prompt in an area where you need to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? In a moment, we're going to, help, we're going to ask God to help us change. But let me encourage you, as you do that, as you listen to the Holy Spirit, see if there's one thing that is laying on your heart that you need to change. Because if there's a hundred things that you need to change, and, and, and many of us do, we know that when we try and do that, nothing much happens. We need to focus on one thing. What is that thing that the Holy Spirit would have you to do? What is it that the Holy Spirit would prompt you to do in this next week? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus in our place. We thank you for the people who have gone before us and sacrificed themselves so that we might live this life. And Lord, as we think about death, we pray that you would be touching each one of us. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Father, would you listen? Uh, would you help us to listen to what you're saying to us? Help us to change. Father, we commit to doing what you want us to, to live for you, not to get our way into heaven, Lord. We thank you that we are in our unity with Christ, but we pray that we would live for you each day of our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, you may have uh, uh, some questions um, uh, following that, and uh, we'd love to talk to you, one of the clergy or one of the other people. But um, one of the other places that's a really good place to come and ask some questions is to the Alpha um, course that's running here. It's starting next Thursday. There's going to be a fantastic three-course dinner, and, uh, and they're going to be... Um, I had it around the wrong way, sorry about that. Um, this is the Alpha one, so, um, and it's going to be uh, on Thursday night, three-course dinner. We'd love you to sign up just around, uh, around to the right as you're going out the back um, and, and sign up for the meal there. Now, it doesn't mean that you're signing up for the whole course. Uh, it's just saying to come along for one, see how it goes, and it'll be well worth the meal. So let me encourage you uh, to do that where you can ask your questions, and you'll see a video there entitled, Is There More to Life Than This? and it'll be a wonderful time. So let me encourage you to do that, friends.
Anzac Cove by Leon Gellert. There's a lonely stretch of hillocks. There's a beach asleep and drear. There's a battered broken fort beside the sea. There are sunken trampled graves and a little rotting pier and winding paths that wind unceasingly. There's a torn and silent valley. There's a tiny rivulet with some blood upon the stones beside its mouth. There are lines of buried bones. There's an unpaid waiting debt. There's a sound of gentle sobbing in the south. As we come to lay a wreath in memory of the Anzacs who fought in the Great War of 1914 to 1918, we remember particularly those from St Stephen's whose names are recorded on our honour roll, including the ten who lost their lives in Egypt, France and Belgium during 1917. The card on the wreath expresses our grateful thanks to those who gave their lives at Gallipoli and during 1917 in the Middle East and on the Western Front in France. Eric Sheen Dowling, wounded at Gallipoli, recovered, wounded in action at Ludd, Egypt, died of wounds on November 18, 1917, <coughs> aged 22 years. Edward Rupert Emerson Garraway, killed at Passchendaele, Belgium, on October 14, 1917, aged 22 years. Marceau Norbert Francis Hotrieve, killed in action in Belgium on October 9, 1917, aged 24 years. Roy Lewington, killed in action in Belgium on October 8, 1917, aged 21 years. Edward Raymond, died on April 6, 1917, in UK, on pneumonia. Sidney Gordon Rhodes, wounded in France, died of wounds on March 11, 1917, aged 31 years. Ernest Albert Schneeschel, wounded in action in Belgium, died of wounds on September 22, 1917, in France, aged 29 years, awarded the Military Medal. Ronald Hugh Beresford McDowell Stewart, wounded in action in France, died of wounds on April 27, 1917, in France, aged 23 years. Basil Horace Swain, served in Gallipoli, wounded in action at Rouen, France, died of wounds on June 23, 1917, aged 20 years. James Gordon Tyson, killed in action in France on May 6, 1917, 
aged 22 years, awarded the Military Cross. They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them, lest we forget.
Gracious Father, it is with humble and thankful hearts we remember all the men and women who lost their lives in past wars. Especially we remember those from Australia and New Zealand engaged in the Gallipoli campaign and in France and Palestine, as well as those involved in the Second World War and the conflicts since. We hold them in solemn remembrance. We also bring before you, O Lord, all the men and women of our defense forces and peacekeepers at present serving at home or abroad. We seek your protection for those engaged in places of combat against tyranny and terrorism and comfort for their loved ones at home. Help us to worship you in the spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray.
Eternal God and Father, the darkness is not dark to you, and the night as clear as the day. Accompany us as we go out into the world, reconciled to one another and to you, so that we may walk through this life's perils and sorrows as children of light. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you now and always. Amen. Great.